Good morning. Wow. Uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to continue our study. While you're turning there, uh, now I know why Sonny likes egg rolls. It's all coming together now. I'm starting to understand. Thank you, brother, for that testimony. I got to say thank you to Sonny and uh, Cal and Ronnie and their teams. I know I'm going to forget somebody, so I probably shouldn't start on names uh, with all the work that they're doing in the Family Life Center. Uh, we will have an open house maybe in the next four to six weeks at some point when we're finished for you as a church family to come see what, uh, what they've done, moving our offices to make room for more children and uh, for more people who aren't here yet, preparing for the future. So I'm so grateful uh, for them. Nehemiah chapter 5, if you're visiting with us, we have been st studying the book of Nehemiah and we discovered Nehemiah quite a visionary. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1, he gets word that his homeland, the walls are down, the temple has been, been rebuilt, but the walls are still down, the city's unprotected. And he gets word and he goes to the king and asks the king, King, can I go back and can I do something? And the king gives him uh, permission to do so. And he begins to build this wall, and then he runs into spiritual warfare that we looked at last week. And spiritual warfare is opposition from without. Some people this week have told me, man, if I could just tell you about my week, just the spiritual warfare that's gone on. I'm going to submit to you that probably that spiritual warfare goes on every week. It's just that we've been talking about it, so you maybe have been a little more aware of it, which is a good thing. But spiritual warfare is those things that come from the outside and try to take us off track from doing what God uh, has called us to do. But there's a different kind of uh, attack that sometimes happens, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And that is conflict from within, which is a different kind of challenge. And what we're going to discover as we read chapter 5 in just a little while is Nehemiah is in the process of building this wall. And he stops the process. He immediately stops the process to deal with some of this opposition that's been faced. Now, biblical scholars, depending on what you read, some scholars argue that this event may have happened after the wall was built. And some scholars say, no, it probably happened while the wall was in the process of being built. I tend to lean that it's when the wall was in the process of being built, that Nehemiah encountered such opposition happening within the camp that he had to turn away from what God had called him to do and kind of hit the pause button on the work to deal with some inner conflict and inner turmoil. And, you know, it makes me kind of want to ask the question, can't we all just get along? Maybe you have some extended family members that you... Ask that question when you have those family reunions and the arguments break out or the discussions about politics or whatever. And you just want to look and just go, can't we all just get along? Just long enough to eat a meal. Well, this inner conflict is going on uh, right in the middle of what Nehemiah has been asked to do. So let's read it together. Nehemiah chapter 5. There was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of this famine. 
Verse four, although there were uh, those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced in bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Nehemiah says in verse six, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles and the rulers and I said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, verse eight, we according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? And they were silent and they could not find a word to say. Verse 9, again, I said, the thing which you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil you're exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and I took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Verse 13, I also shook out the front of my garment and I said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. Verse 14, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took, them, took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Verse 17, Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on the people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for the people. We're going to talk this morning about united we stand, divided we fall. You know, spiritual warfare is real. And Sonny mentioned that spiritual warfare, it, it affects all of us. But one of the things that's uh, really sad in today's world is sometimes we have inner fighting among people who should be like-minded. I don't know if you're aware of this today, and I'm, I'm not going to get into this, and you'll find out uh, that uh, I am not uh, in the politics of the Southern Baptist Convention. That should be where you go, amen. amen. Okay, there you go. I'll help you out. Because even our Southern Baptist Convention right now uh, is in the midst of a turmoil. I would suggest to you there are probably other things that are not as significant as those who are arguing think they are. One of Satan's greatest strategies is to get people who should be on the same side arguing with one another. Because united we stand, divided we fall. Some of us maybe think that, you know, Satan's tactic is he's going to send some attack from the outside to destroy the church. He might, and he has, and he does, and he probably will continue to do so. 
But I'm of the firm opinion that one of his greatest strategies that we sometimes overlook is opposition from within. Brothers and sisters in Christ who should be on the same page and who should be loving one another, but we allow the enemy to get a foothold. Now, don't misunderstand me. Sometimes we need to break fellowship over serious issues. We need to break fellowship over doctrine and heresies and evil behavior when people are willing to be unrepentant. When they're not willing to repent, then we should break fellowship. But there are some things in our history that maybe fellowship has been broken and there hasn't really been a strong biblical basis for doing so. I think the world, those especially who are not fans of Jesus, watch that happen and they laugh and they mock and they say, wow, they're supposed to be on the same team. If they can't get it together, why would I want to be a part of that? It's the adage that used to happen when I was a kid and I would have my toys in the sandbox with my little buddy across the street and he didn't like the particular roads that I had carved out in the sandbox and he would get really frustrated with me and he would grab up all of his matchbox cars and go, I'm going home. (laughs) And he would take all of his toys and go pounding across the street. And some of us, we laugh, but some of us spiritually That's what happens in today's world. That's why we have infinite number of denominations and all kinds of fractions of Christianity because at some point, somebody couldn't get along. Now, again, I'll say this because I want you to know, I want to go on record and want you to know my heart. There is a time to break fellowship over serious doctrinal issues. So what is the problem here in this chapter? What is going on? What is this opposition that we are seeing in this scripture well it's the jews brothers and sisters who are fighting who are not taking care of each other while this wall is being built the enemy is coming they've already been chastised and made fun of by sanballat and tobiah and the, the other people who last chapter remember were chiming in all this is going on and nehemiah has to say okay i'm gonna have to ignore this spiritual warfare for just a minute because we've got to have a family meeting and get our act together and that's what's going on And we find out what is happening is the needs were being ignored by some of the wealthier Jews and even exploited. Famine had happened. And we read in those first few verses where it says they were even mortgaging, verse 3, their fields and their vineyards and their houses because of the famine. It was so desperate. They were even selling their children into slavery to the rich people so that they could have money to buy food. Now, you may go, wow, does that still happen today? Yes, it sure does. When you go, those of you that are going to be going with us to the Dominican Republic this summer, you will see that. That is exactly what's happening in the Dominican Republic. It actually happens in the United States of America. We just bury our head in the sands a lot of time. Human trafficking, the selling of children into slavery. What's interesting as you study this passage, you'll find out that the Mosaic law actually forbade the Jews from loaning money, especially at interest to another Jew. Exodus chapter 22, check it out sometimes. So these Jewish wealthy Jews are actually going against Mosaic law, and in turn, they're actually doing wrong to their friends. These complaints start coming. And the problems are so big that Nehemiah says, okay, we've got to hit pause on what God's called us to do because we have to take care of this problem. They stopped the building of the wall. You know, complaints always come when you have your hands full. 
Complaints always come when you have your hands full. You can be busy going about whatever the task is that God has called you to do, and that's when the complaints will start. I am so glad we learned from Nehemiah that he was a leader who handled it immediately and didn't kick the can down the road, but he stopped. So what can we learn about this passage from Nehemiah? The first thing we've got to know about resolving complaints is we have to talk to the right people. To face opposition, internal opposition, we have to talk to the right people. Did you know a leader cannot deal with problems he's unaware of? Did you know that? I, I am thankful that so far in my short time here at Crossroads, if there's ever an issue, most of the time, whoever, whoever and whatever the issue is, somebody comes up and says, hey, did you know about this? Can we fix this? You know, in a lot of churches across our land, there are leaders, not just the main teaching pastor, but among all the staff, there are leaders who do not have a clue of some of the problems. And what happens is people in the congregation will talk about the problems to one another and let it fester and get all kinds of gossip and things going. That is not going to be the culture of Crossroads Baptist Church, nor has it been, I don't think. So here these people are, these opposition is happening. And sometimes, even when leaders, by the way, are aware of the troubles, they can't always solve them. So they come to Nehemiah. Now, we don't know if they, if they went to the wealthy Jews and tried to ask them, can you help us? Can you, can you do something? Probably they did, but it didn't work because not only are these wealthier Jews charging them to loan money, but actually charging them interest. And we just read in those verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, where they're mortgaging their homes to be able to take care of themselves. So it's not a great uh, thing to do when you're not talking to the right people. It reminds me of a story of a, a lady in church. She had an issue with the, with the church. She didn't go to the pastor. She went out and she just started talking to all her friends. Don't, don't you think somebody should do something about that? She would tell them. They, she would just talk and talk and talk. It finally got word to the pastor what was going on after a whole church was in a turmoil about this issue. And so the pastor politely called her into his office and he said, when you come, could you please bring, uh, just bring the most humble spirit you can? And so she came to the office and they started talking and thankfully God intervened and she started crying and she said, pastor, I'm so sorry. You know, I don't I don't know what I was thinking. I, I started gossiping. I got all that out. And she said, I just forgive me. He said, I forgive you. He reached under his desk and he handed her a feather pillow. He said, but I want you to do something. She said, what, what is this for? What, what do you want me to do? He said, I'd like you to take this feather pillow and go out to the town square and rip it open and just shake it and let feathers fly everywhere. And she said, well, why, why do I, what, what would you want me to do that for? And he said, I, I want you to do that. After you've done that, after all the feathers have flown everywhere, I want you to go one by one and I want you to pick up every feather. And she said, Pastor, there's no way I can do that. He said, likewise, you've repented and confessed and praise God for that, but the damage that you've done, you'll never be able to collect. And that's what happens sometimes when we don't go to the right person when we've been offended, when somebody's spoken ill of us, there, there is a correct way to do it that we're going to look at in just a minute, that the Bible instructs us as believers how to handle ourselves if we've been offended by another believer. So the first thing is we've got to talk to the right person, but the second thing is we have to deal with things biblically. We have to deal with that person biblically. What do we read here? How, how does Nehemiah respond? Verse 6, it says, He was angry. He was angry. Do I have that up there? Okay, no. He was angry. You may want to jot these down. There are five ways to deal with people biblically. The first one, be angry the right way. Did you know anger is not wrong? 
You know, there's a lot of things that have been incorrectly taught in the church. And one of them is that, oh, don't get angry. That's wrong. And the reason we say that anger is wrong is because most of us, when we're angry, cannot restrain our anger to the point of not sinning. And so our anger turns into sin. So instead of us saying, you can be angry, but don't sin, we just say, don't be angry. But being angry is biblical. And Nehemiah got angry. As a matter of fact, being angry about things that hurt the heart of God is a great way to be angry. We need some more angry Christians in the world that are angry about things that make God angry. You and I need to be more angry about our sin. We need to be more angry when people in our midst try to cause disunity. That should cause us anger, righteous anger. The Bible talks about anger, and it tells us uh, that Jesus was angry. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4, but yet was without sin. So we have to respond in anger, and we have to respond correctly. Now, we have a saying I hear a lot in Baptist life especially. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. We know that. But sometimes our hatred towards sin crosses over in our attitude and presentation that the person who has that sin that we hate, the sin that we hate, they think we hate them. That's crossing anger over into sin. Does that make sense? So we have to be very careful. We have to deal with people biblically. We have to have our anger the right way. The second thing about dealing with them biblically is we have to exercise self-control. I love what it says in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 7. It says, and I consulted with myself. You ever had a conversation with yourself? Somebody asked you a question. Hold on a minute. Let me ask my consultant. Okay, self, what do you think about that? He consulted with himself. He stopped and just said, okay, let's take a pause, which is really smart. You know, I, I, I got I to gotta just honor Gerald and his dear bride. 62 years of being married yesterday. Praise the Lord for you guys. 62 years. Wow, wow. And never angry once, right? Yeah, you can give them a hand. 62 years. I'm going on 25, and I'm just thinking, there's sometimes I've been angry. My wife's in the nursery, so I can talk about her. I've been angry. She's been angry. There's sometimes that anger has slid over into sin, and there are many times it would not have slid into sin if I'd have just stopped and consulted with myself. Had an attitude check. Proverbs 16:32 says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Wow. Exercising self-control. The other thing, number three, we need to know about dealing with people biblically is we need to follow the steps in the Bible that are outlined for us to deal with brothers and sisters when we have conflict and opposition. Do we know what they are? Most of us as believers don't know what the Bible teaches about this. And if we do, we rarely demonstrate it. We rarely practice it. The Bible gives us pretty clear instructions. And Nehemiah, though he did not know what Jesus was going to say in the future and what Jesus is going to teach, it's interesting. He actually models that himself in verse 7. What does he do? He consults himself and then he goes to the people. He says he contends with the nobles and the rulers. Verse 7, he goes to them and he confronts them in private and says, Hey, I'm hearing this is what's going on. Let's talk about this. 
in private. Not on Facebook, not on social media, not blasting your brother or sister in Christ. Well, I'm just sharing it, but just because it's a prayer request. It's a prayer request. (laughs) They need to know. The world needs to know to be praying. So he goes to them in private. We don't know how many times he has this conversation. We're recorded there in in verse 7 that he goes to them and asks them once. But then it says the next thing he does, Therefore I held a great assembly against them. The next thing he does is he confronts them publicly. Publicly. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us these instructions. It says, if, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two with you. Oh, that we would practice that in the church of Jesus Christ. The world is watching how we handle inner conflict and opposition. We cannot be afraid to confront sin. I remember one time many, many years ago, in one of the first churches that I served, I was a young guy, didn't know what I was doing, barely 20. And there was one of our leaders in the church, very influential, gave a lot to the church budget. I found out in my early 20s that there were some inappropriate relationships happening among he and the church secretary. Wasn't married yet. I was a single guy, sophomore at Gardner-Webb University, Gardner-Webb College then. I remember going to some of the deacons because we had an interim pastor at the time and saying, okay, what do we do here? How do we handle it? Well, I don't know. We probably should just let it play out. You know, he gives a lot of money to the church. And you, you, you kind of go, oh me, I did too. If you knew how much that happens in the world of Christianity and in church work, afraid to confront sin because it's going to hurt somebody. The next thing we'll realize, though, about handling things biblically is being an example. We can't be afraid to confront people. Sometimes we're afraid to confront people because we're afraid if we say something to them, then they're going to turn around and point at us and go, well, yeah, but what about you? Or what about these things that you've done? So we need to guard against that and be an example. There's another false teaching, false concept going on in our world. And we use this phrase, judge not lest you be judged, as a tolerance to allow sinful things that are against God to happen in our world. And I hear a lot of young people, you young people, I hear a lot of you and college students say this, well, I don't want to judge them, I don't want to judge them. That's great, you don't want to judge them, fantastic. But the Bible is very clear that we are to judge behavior. We misinterpret that verse that Jesus taught, and we take out of context what he's saying, and we totally turn it around to something that is not what he had in mind. It's talking about taking an inspection of your life and the life of someone else and their behaviors. Jesus talked about it in the book of Matthew. He kind of called it fruit inspection. When it says judge not lest you be judged, it means be discerning. Be watchful. Be thinking. Distinguish between these good behaviors and these bad behaviors. But oh, in our culture, we just say, well, I'm not going to judge. Judge not lest you be judged. And we use that as an excuse to allow people, both Christians and non-Christians, to have behaviors that are totally contrary to the Word of God. That should not be so. Men and women of Crossroads, that should not be so. Yeah. 
Now again, it's a fine line because you can judge the person and we're not to judge the person. Only the person knows their heart. Only God and they know their heart. But we can judge the behavior. As a parent, if I let my kids hang out with other people when they were 10, 11, 12, 13, can't do a lot about it now because they're off at college. They're on their own. But when they were those young ages of 10, 12, 13, 14, and they were sleeping under my roof, and what goes, what I say go, because I pay the bills. And that's where you sleep. When that was the case, then I could be a little more involved in saying, you are not going to associate with people who have those kind of behaviors. If I was not judging as a parent, I should be arrested or, or DSS should show up at my doorstep and have a word with me. True? Now, we would say that as parents, why do we not have that same mindset when it comes to the things of God? Because the world has brainwashed us into thinking we cannot judge people's behavior. I want to set you free this morning and tell you you can, according to the Word of God. Now, again, it's a fine line. Because if you slide over into judging the person, there's a dear friend right now that you pray for him. I hope to be meeting with him this week. And he is in a lifestyle, he's a young 20-year-old, he is in a lifestyle that is so contrary to God. And we've been texting back and forth. And the first text I sent to him said, Can I, I'd love to just meet you and have coffee. It's been a couple years since he and I have had a conversation, but I watch what happens on social media with him, and I can tell by behavior he's miserable. And his text back to me was, I'll be happy to sit down and talk with you if you're not going to be judgmental and condemning. And I texted back to him and said, I love you and I care about you. I want to talk about you. We'll talk about the behavior, but I'm more interested in you. And a good leader, as Nehemiah demonstrated here, is more concerned with the person than the behavior. The behavior is a symptom of the problem. And so we've got to be an example. Was Nehemiah an example? Sure he was. All throughout this chapter, we learned how he was an example. In verse 8, he tells us that he actually used his own money to provide food. For those that didn't have food, he said, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. He actually bought some of those who had been sold into slavery and said, no, 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 I'm going to pay their bill. I'm going to redeem them, which is a fantastic word for exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He redeemed us. He paid the bill. He paid the penalty. And the bill was blood on a cross, death on a cross. And Nehemiah says, I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to pay their bill, and I'm going to take care of them so that they can have food. He also loaned money with no interest, we read in verse 10. He laid aside his rights and position, we read about in verses 14 and 15. He was generous. There's so much more that we could say there, but not a lot of time this morning. He, he worked for God's approval. If you study this, you'll find out that Nehemiah has kind of slid into this position of governor, and what would happen with all the previous governors, they had an allowance for how much they could get from the people, much like we're set up in our world, taxation, much like we are. And he would get certain benefits by being the ruler. Those, the food, the wine that we mentioned in those last few verses. And he basically had said to the people, we're not, I'm not, I don't want that. We're not going to worry about me. We're going to worry about you. That's a good leader and example. But the other thing, the fifth thing about 
doing what the Bible says and dealing with it biblically is he actually held people accountable. Verse 12, after he meets the people privately, they don't, they don't respond. He goes to them publicly. They respond. They say, you're right, Nehemiah. Verse 12, we will give back this money. We will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. And Nehemiah could have said, fantastic. Thank you so much for agreeing with me and agreeing with what God wants and God's order. Thank you so much and walked away, but he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to hold you accountable. One of the ways that we'll know if we're making progress in our vision here at Crossroads is, are we willing to hold one another accountable? That's the A in Roads. If you miss Vision Sunday, grab a brochure. Holding them accountable. And so here's what he said. He called the priests together, and he took an oath from them so that they would do according to their promise. Took a public oath before everyone, which is much like we do when you join the church or when you come to faith in Christ. You stand up publicly and say, this is what I'm doing. Why do we do that? Why do we bring people down in front of the church? Is that just so a couple hundred of us can come by and shake somebody's hand and say, good job, congratulations? No. That's part of it, but no. It's to hold those who have said, Jesus Christ has changed my life, revolutionized my life, and I'm going to follow him. It's to hold them accountable. Which is another thing that we don't do a lot in the church, generally speaking. Why? Because it's difficult. It's difficult. And it requires relationship. And what he actually did in verse 13 tells us, and their tradition was when somebody did like that, they would take their robe off. And as a sign that they're making this oath, they would shake it out like that in front of the crowd. As if to say, if you don't follow through, if you break this oath, it's almost like God just, what does the scripture say? It says, may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions if you don't fulfill this promise. Wow, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Maybe we need to make it a little harder to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe we've made it too easy. I'm asking a question, I don't know, but maybe we just say, all you got to do is come down and say a little prayer. Boom, you come to Jesus and you're a part of the church. He held people accountable. Number three, the last thing, and we're done this morning. We have to submit to God, his word, and our leaders. And that's what the people did. They took the oath. In verse 17, it says he gathered together at his table 150 Jews and officials, even neighboring nations, they came together. They prepared this meal and they submitted themselves to God, his word, and his leaders. Many times, people don't act like this, do they? They get, they get angry. But instead of going to the person to whom they've been wronged, they just get their toys out of the sandbox and they go, I'm going to go down here to this other church. And they take their toys and they leave. But what was the result of these people? They accepted Nehemiah's rebuke. They knew they had disobeyed God. They knew they had hurt their fellow Jews. Not only that, but we read in verse 9, they knew that it would give their enemies cause to mock God. You know, when I meet with this young guy this week, I've already seen through his social media post 
one of the biggest rocks that he would throw at the church, generally speaking, is how we handle conflict amongst ourselves. Did you know there's lost people out there that watch us? And they watch how we treat each other. And if we stab each other in the back or we respond with gossip, then I don't know about you, but if I was them, I'd go, I don't want any of that. I can get that out here. Why do I need to go in there and get it? So what a great opportunity we have. Is there anybody in your life that's maybe causing conflict? Maybe they're a fellow believer. And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this morning you just need to grab them. Maybe if they're not here, you need to call them and say, hey, can we sit down for coffee and, and talk? Because one of the greatest things that you and I can do as a believer, I, I, I actually love, I have friends that kind of, I'm wrapping up, I, I have friends that sometimes laugh at me and they say, you like confrontation. I don't like confrontation, but what I do like is working through difficulties with people. Why? Because it sharpens me. We, we've lost that ability to have conversation in our world with people who disagree. Not just outside the church, but inside the church. We would instead rather get on our social media platform and spew out what we think, because that's easy. But to have a conversation with somebody with a differing opinion, that requires listening. So what's going on in your heart today and in your world today? Is there anybody maybe that you're dealing with with conflict or opposition? If not, it's coming, because we're human. It might be in your house. It might be with your spouse. It might be with your mouse. It might be with a friend. I, I, I hope you would never, you and I would never face conflict and opposition, but we're human and it's going to happen. The true test is, what's our response going to be? Because the world is watching. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the example of Nehemiah. Thank you for the example of his leadership. Some of us today may say, well, I'm not in a leadership position, but we can apply these principles in the relationships of our life. Maybe we're a, a son or a daughter and we need to apply these principles to our parents. Maybe we're a parent and we need to apply these principles to our kids. Maybe we need to apply them to our boss, maybe a brother or sister in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd have your way this morning. And I pray if there's anyone in this congregation today that needs to be redeemed, like Nehemiah redeemed those people by paying their debt. I pray if there's anybody here today that needs to be redeemed by Jesus, that needs to confess him as Lord and Savior, that this morning they would do that. And we trust you with this remainder of the service in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us, love to have you become a part of Crossroads today. If you need to make another decision, Maybe you need to confess something to the Lord this morning. This, the altar's open up front. Joey's going to lead us in what we call an invitation hymn. That we, we call it an invitation hymn because God is inviting you and me to respond to what his word has said today. So would you stand with us and let's sing together.